one of the one of the earliest epidemiological studies ever done in the physical activity and health field was called the the Rootmaster bus study. It was it was done in in England, and it looked at cardiovascular disease risk among. So you know, in London, they've got like the double decker buses, right? So you've got two guys, two guys, most in most cases, guys work on the bus. Like one guy's the bus driver, and the other guy is the ticket master. He's the one who's like going around and and collecting tickets and going up and down the stairs and so on. And by most measures, these guys are pretty similar demographically, right? They're probably similar level of education. They're making a similar amount of money. So they can both buy the same number of pints, you know, at the on whatever at the end of the shift. Um so really the idea being that they're, they're basically the same person. The only difference is one is largely sedentary through the day and the other is largely physically active throughout the day. Not at a high, again, not at a high intensity. And I don't, I don't remember the exact numbers, but there was a very significant difference in cardiovascular disease risk for uh, uh, those who were, again, up and down and active all day versus those who were driving all day. And there's even been some research to suggest that um, the person who might work out, quote unquote, for an hour a day, but then spends the rest of their day and week largely sedentary is less healthy than the person, than the, the UPS driver who never goes to the gym, but is just physically active for the This is Drew and Alex. Uh, we're here live with another guest. Alex, who are we talking? We're not even live. I don't know why I said we're live, but Alex, who are we talking to today? It's close enough. We're talking to Dan Bornstein. Currently, Dan is the chair of the military sector of U.S. National Physical Activity Plan. And interestingly, the timing is pretty good. We recorded this conversation just prior to uh, a hearing before Congress that he was leading, um, that is now in the past, it was in the future when we talked to him, but he, he led a briefing talking about the criticality of physical activity to national security. And he also leads separately. So in addition to that, his own consulting effort at the intersection of fitness, health, and national security. So it's something he's coming at from multiple angles here. Uh, his background leading up to this stuff uh, spans research, teaching, and industry roles. Before jumping into academia, he founded two fitness companies down in Arizona, where he worked with elite athletes and tactical professionals. And then in 2012, he completed his PhD in exercise science at the University of South Carolina and joined the faculty at the Citadel, where he built their tactical strength and conditioning programs. It's also where I first bumped into him was when he was at the Citadel. If you've heard his name, it's probably because of some of the research he's done. His, his research and commentary have been featured in a whole bunch of scientific journals, over 100 media outlets. He's been published in USA Today, Newsweek, Stars and Stripes, NPR, all sorts of stuff. And the most likely one you've heard about is his research looking at trends in which military recruits are the most likely to get injured, um, specifically regional trends, like where they come from. Um, we talk about that a little bit in this episode, so you'll hear more on that as we go. And I, so for me, because we've had researchers on before, and it's always fascinating to talk to people whose job literally is to answer questions. But I think the one of the things that was incredibly interesting with Dan that you may pick up on with kind of the line of questioning we go down is that like Dan, case in point, he's briefing Congress, like he sits at a policy level. So it's cool to deal with, especially, I mean, the topic of this conversation centers around 
health outcomes and obesity. And that's something that I think we all obviously deal with in the day to day. But then when you start to ask questions at like a political level and how can we actually make change, it was sort of cool, not sort of cool, it was really cool to be able to talk to somebody who's who's in that. And he talks about that a little bit. He dives into some of like what, it, what it's like to straddle the different political landscapes and why we may not be able to change things as easily as we'd like to, et cetera. So it's definitely an interesting conversation. It's one that is is going to be different than what you might expect on a human performance podcast, but incredibly important nonetheless. So hope you enjoy. Awesome. Don't be fooled. Like the reason we do it this way is because we have no clue what we're doing. It's not because we've deliberately chosen to do it. It's because neither one of us <laughs> know what we're doing. So let me, I'll kick it off with, with this one because I like in sort of obviously reading your research and more of the kind of commercial content you've put out with the article in the Hill that just came out, like you type in obesity as a threat to national security or public health or what have you. And like, this is a conversation that clearly has been going on for a long time. So I suppose the, the question there is like, what, what is the, what is the expected outcome or hoped for outcome when, when you guys kind of sit down and produce products like this, that I would assume get, you know, pitched to decision makers, policymakers, what have you, like, is it, is it a box that you're checking or is there like an expected change that you want to implement? It's definitely not checking a box. I, I guess, let, let me back up to when I was at University of South Carolina doing my PhD, which, which came after, you know, almost 15 years in the commercial fitness industry as, you know, a personal trainer. And I wouldn't call myself a strength coach. I, I was more of like a post-rehab guy. Uh, so I, I sort of surrounded myself with other strength coaches who would take clients from, you know, performance of 35, 40% back up to hundred, 110. And I was like the zero to 35, whatever percent guy. Um, but when I went to university of South Carolina, I, I, I changed my focus to more of this like physical activity and public health thing. So less on individual level performance and more okay, like, how do we get an entire population of people to be just a little bit more physically active so that we can decrease incidence and prevalence of these chronic diseases like diabetes and heart disease and cancers and, and now a lot of mental health disorders that are like crippling us economically, right? It's unsustainable. Um, and so I was reading all this research on, on physical activity and, and health or physical inactivity and disease. And the correlations were there all over the place, right? So just decades and, and thousands of epidemiological studies and interventional studies, clinical trials, and so on. So the evidence was clear. And the message and the, and, and the framing of the message was that this is a major public health issue. And yet the problem persisted. And, and same, same, similarly with obesity, although you started to see a little bit more traction with obesity, for example, like you saw municipalities that started thinking about and actually enacting policies for taxes on sugary sweetened beverages and things like that. So there was, you started to see some policy change there, but there was very little policy change to demonstrate that we really cared about physical inactivity in this country. And 
and I, I've talked about this in some other venues before, and maybe I'll just talk about it here, you know, getting federal legislative policy to take place, you know, requires legislators to actually want to get in to do something. And, and that's not an easy thing to do. And particularly when it involves individual sort of choice or behavior, right? That's, that's, that's a really tough place to go. And yet there is precedent for that smoking to the individual smoker. And scientists knew this and, and elected officials knew this, and there was no real stopping of or attempt to try to stop people from smoking or buying cigarettes or what have you. And then the evidence on the harmful effects of secondhand smoke started to mount. And that was when legislators started to sort of scratch their heads and go, hmm, you know, if, if you want to smoke yourself to death, that's okay. We'll let you do that. But to smoke next to the people you're sitting with on the airplane or at the office or in your place of worship or what, you know, what have you. Yeah. We're, we're not going to let that happen. Um, so it's sort of like when the harmful effects of your own behavior are affecting somebody else, that's sort of when government traditionally has stepped in. We've seen it with seatbelts, we've seen it with vaccinations and so on and so forth. So it was during that time that I started thinking about physical inactivity and its impact on sort of military readiness and national security. And we also know, you know, regionally that there are some, you know, the South ain't called the stroke belt for nothing, right? There's a much higher prevalence of stroke and other cardiovascular diseases in the rural, well, throughout the South and Southeast. So that was when I sort of first got this idea of, wow, you know, I, I knew that there was this association between physical activity and fitness and musculoskeletal injuries among at least, you know, initial military trainees and the Army Public Health Center had done a lot of this research as well as some others. And so I, that was when I made the call and asked, like, has anybody ever looked at this on a regional or state by state basis? And they said, no, nobody ever has. And I said, well, would you mind maybe sharing with me some data from, uh, you know, basic, basic combat training was what we had. We didn't have any other training at that time. Um, so yeah, they sent me three years worth of data on basically everybody who went through army basic training over that three-year period. And we, you know, we analyzed the data to look at the relationship between physical fitness, BMI injuries, and the state that they were recruited from. And the hypothesis was that fitness would be a strong predictor of injuries and a BMI would be a predictor of injuries. And it was. And that the actual state that they were recruited from, when you even controlled for those other two variables, would it would also predict injuries, and it and and they did. So recruits coming from southern states were significantly more likely to get injured. And I did that research because, not to just like so in academia, sometimes you need to just check a box for just like doing research. And in scientific journals, every scientific journal is given what's called an impact factor. And as academicians, oftentimes, and as scientists, we want to try to publish in the highest impact factor journal possible. So like New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA, Nature, these are really high, quote unquote, impact factor journals, because they're supposed to make an impact, right? They're supposed to make a difference. And 
like I couldn't get this paper published anywhere. <laughs> you know, I tried, I tried all those. I did like the academician, like ego route, like, oh, this is totally going to go in the New England Journal of Medicine. Well, no, it did not. And it got turned down. Didn't even make it past like the initial editor's desk for peer review. They're like, thanks, but no thanks. So that particular study ended up getting published in this relatively small impact factor journal called the Journal of Public Health Management and Practice. But what was kind of crazy about it was that it caught wildfire. Like in the popular media, the results from this paper got, it just, it just happened. You know, it just got picked up all over the place. So the actual impact that it had was quite significant, even though the impact factor of the journal was really low. And that in and of itself told me that, okay, maybe this is a message that is going to resonate better. In other words, this idea that physical activity and physical fitness are as much or maybe more of a national security issue than they might be a public health issue, maybe can actually get us the traction that we need to create the changes in the environments where people live and work and play and go to school and commute and so on so that they can become and stay more physically active. So we've got a better candidate pool of applicants for military service or, or law enforcement or fire or just general citizenry even. And uh, so that led to, you know, some more research in, in that area. And it's led to a whole bunch of other kind of products, I guess, like, like you said, Drew, one of them being this new military sector of the National Physical Activity Plan. And in preparation for that, um, uh, the announcement of that, which is coming out, it's coming out on Monday, uh, and a con through a congressional briefing. And uh, yeah, so we, I, I wrote this piece for The Hill. And, you know, it was, it was interesting. I had a different title <laughs> than The Hill did, and they, they slapped obesity on the title. And that wasn't necessarily the title that I <laughs> had had for them, but it was fine. You know, it was totally fine. They had physical activity in there and we got to talk plenty about physical activity. I got, you know, they, they didn't really change the content of what I had written in the, in the op-ed. Uh, so none of it is to just, I guess if you could say if trying to change our culture is checking a box, then that's the box I'm trying to check. Well, so on, on that topic though, I guess what, what are the results you hope to see coming out of this congressional briefing and this campaign and this plan and all of these things? Cause I think a lot of this stuff is, and Drew and I've been discussing this previously, this is stuff a lot of people already know. It's just about convincing them to care at this point. So how, how do we do that? And what, what do you think are the next steps to make these conversations actually lead to action? So, well, if you can imagine physical activity being as, or physical inactivity being as obvious as smoking is, you know, in terms of just like an observable behavior, we will have won this battle when physical inactivity is as socially unacceptable as smoking is now. There'll always be people who are going to be physically inactive and there'll always be people who smoke. Um, so that's the, like, that's the end game for me is to get to that point. Um, there's a lot of stops along the way. One of them, and probably perhaps one of the most influential ones would be comprehensive school physical activity programs. So CPAP is what it's been called. Part, a big part of which is high quality and quantity of physical education. So physical education needs to be present 
in every child's life from K pre-K through high school. That would be O-N, right? If we had actual really high quality and quantity of physical education that every child was exposed to for the, their entire schooling experience and even preschool. Great. That, that would be a win. In addition to that, maybe all the other time in their day or some of the other time as they're going to and from school or what types of, act, you know, is there physical activity that gets integrated throughout their day? Access to high quality youth sport is another big one. So um, the National Youth Sport Strategy talks about that and lays the, lays the foundation for how we could, we could have build a culture of sport. We don't really have a good culture of sport in this country like we have in other countries. We're big fans of professional sports, but we don't, we don't have a high prevalence of people who are playing sports throughout a good portion of their lives. And part of that is because we don't make that a priority. So, you know, and then there's the National Physical Activity Plan, which is a roadmap. So th those are those are three examples, like comp comprehensive physical activity, you know, comprehensive school physical activity programming, um, high quality youth sport access, and, and then thinking about the rest of the population too. Um, those are the things if, if we can get traction and, and it remains to be seen. I mean, I, I, I arrived at this hypothesis, like I said, at the University of South Carolina, that reframing sort of physical inactivity as a national security issue would be enough to move the needle and like actually get policy change and other types of change to happen. Whether or not that hypothesis is going to hold, uh, it's, a, it's about to be tested, <laughs> frankly. Um, and I don't know. I, I, I can't sit here and tell you that it's going to make the difference. But I hearken back to my first job out of college when I was selling commercial property casualty insurance in Midtown Manhattan. Alex, I don't, I don't know if I told you this story before. Did I tell you this story? I think you have. I'm looking forward to it here, though. <laughs> I, I think... Uh, yeah, I think I told you the story when you were still um, at the MFT school, I think. Um, so you guys remember the, the movie with Tom Cruise, you know, where, you know, where he's a he's a sports agent. Right. Uh, so and there are these cutaways to this old time like sports agent who's giving him these words of advice. And that was like, that was my VP of sales when I was selling insurance. He was like this old school insurance salesman <laughs> who would give me these like little, little pieces of advice here and there. And he called me into his office one day and he's like, Dan, there are two things that'll make people buy insurance from you. And I was like, well, what's that, Bill? He said, greed and fear. Those are the two <laughs> things that motivate people. And I was like, okay, uh, example. He said, well, if you're reading through somebody's policies and you realize that there's a big gap in their insurance, well, you can play on that and tell them that at their time of loss, you know, they're not going to get paid by the insurance company. So you're going to scare them. It's like, okay. And he said, and if on top of that, you can save them a few shekels, well, then they're going to buy insurance from you. And I thought about it and he was right. Actually, you know, Geico, right. You'd say 15% or more on your car insurance. Um, you know, there are a lot of industries that play on, on greed and fear. And frankly, physical activity and public health, it's not that fearful, really. It's not a scary. It's not that scary. It's, it's scary to you if you have a heart attack 
or maybe it's scary, a little scary if you get diabetes, but you know, you can live with diabetes for 40, 50 years, right? So that's not that scary. Cancer, eh, yeah, it's pretty scary. Um, you know, national security is pretty scary. Like that's, you know, the idea that, that we could not be the most dominant force on the planet, that's kind of scary. And frankly, it's pretty real that we're, we're going to reach a point where uh, our near-peer threats are going to be able to dominate us. And so I'm frankly betting on fear that uh, by delivering a message and reframing physical inactivity and, and even obesity, as others have worked to do, as national security issues will hopefully get us to the point where we're actually able to create the policy changes that are going to change the environments, that are going to change the behavior, that are going to change the culture to the point where, again, physical inactivity is just socially unacceptable. It's just not what we do. Part of what makes me optimistic is that there's so many potential messages here because the national security message is one that will appeal to a certain demographic, right? But then you also have the message about like its, its effectiveness in preventing mental health consequences that appeals to another demographic. Then you have another message about this can make healthcare more affordable because people cost less to ensure that appeals to another demographic. There's, there's so many ways to stage this one for the audience you want to convince. But the, the flip side of it is none of these are like secrets that we haven't gotten out. These are pretty accessible pieces of information. And as far as I can tell, it's not just that things are still bad. It's that things are getting worse and they're getting worse faster. And so we haven't, we haven't even like turned the corner of slowing down the rate at which this gets worse. I just cracked open Kelly McGonigal's book a couple of nights ago. I don't know if you've read The Joy of Movement. Yes, I have. And it's on almost exactly this topic. But the, the stat that really struck me, it was in like chapter one or two or something, was that like on average, the peak physical activity in somebody's lifetime in America is age six. And that's terrifying. Like it's, it's downhill from age six onward. Like we've got some serious, we got a deep hole to dig ourselves out of. And I, I do not know how, given the fact that we know all this stuff, I don't know how people aren't more scared, honestly. Well, there's, so we have to keep trying. Um, so you know, failure is not an option here, I guess, is, is one thing I would say. And another thing I'd say, Alex, is that there are different um, theories on policy change and how it takes place. And, and there's one framework, it's actually called the multiple streams framework. And it's the idea that you sort of, there are these various sort of, you can have a political stream and then a policy stream and a problem stream. So the, the, the politics stream is sort of right, who's, in, who's in government. Um, the policy stream is what types of things are you trying to get, what, you know, what changes are you trying to have take place, which to your point, you know, not a whole lot has happened. And then there's this problem stream, which we also see, which is that it's getting worse. And oftentimes those streams can kind of go along for a while and, and very little happens. And then something called a focusing event will happen. Um, so 9-11 was a focusing event. That, that was a point at which we, we sort of decided we needed to go to, the, go to war on, on terror and terrorists. Um, so I'm not exactly, so, so th that, that multiple streams framework or multiple streams theory posits that when those three streams converge around a focusing event, 
a quote unquote policy window opens and bam, you get major change. What do you, I guess on that point then, what do you think, like, what do you think that major change would be? Is there like a, and I'm kind of thinking out loud here, but like, is there a forcing function that happens at the level of government that says like, because with smoking, for example, like certain things are now illegal to do. Like you cannot smoke on a plane, but you can be overweight and out of shape on a plane. And I almost kind of wonder, especially with this culture we kind of have now of, and I'm not knocking it, but like body positivity, acceptance, et cetera, like that type of thing is on the rise while simultaneously the risk factors associated with accepting that very thing are like Alex pointed out, becoming exponentially worse. And so I guess what I'm trying to get at is like, what, what needs to happen to where we are able to promote physical activity, able to promote healthy eating, able to promote all this stuff without this, this like shell of don't tell other people how they need to live their lives, accept everything, like everything is okay, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When it becomes too painful for us to sustain what we're doing, which we haven't quite reached that point yet. I mean, that that's kind of the reality, you know, that I guess that's the reality because, you know, when you bring in the whole, like, again, obesity, body shaming thing, which is real, right? I mean, we do not want to create eating disorders and, 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 and things like that. And that's where I think there's frankly some beauty in talking about sort of physical activity and health and not necessarily body composition or BMI and health is that again, there's overwhelming evidence that irrespective of any change in body weight status, if you become and stay more physically active, you dramatically reduce your risk of multiple disease outcomes. And frankly, even if you're an, and you know, if you're an athlete or, uh, you know, a tactical professional, you can carry some extra mass around as long as you can move that mass and you can, you can move well and move effectively and do your job. Well, I don't really care if you're 20 or 30 pounds overweight, or if you're categorized as, as overweight, or maybe even as obese. Um, the, when it starts to get in the way of your job, okay, yeah, we've got, a, we've got a, an issue here, but, but again, so I, I don't, I don't know what that point is, Drew, but that, that's, that's part of, again, when you get back to your initial question about checking a box, I, I got tired, I guess, of hearing the beating drum of physical activity and health. And, and I, I wanted to just beat another drum, I guess, and, and hope that the, the beat of it was going to be either loud enough or scary enough that it was going to get some attention. It is getting some attention. Is it enough? Like, I don't know. You know, we'll see, but I, I'll say this. Um, you know, the, the fact that there is a military sector of a national physical activity plan, the fact that there is a congressional briefing about it, the fact that you've got, you do have things like holistic health and fitness and whole health and, and other, other things that DOD and VA and, and, and others are, are trying to do, I think our, our evidence that we're trying to move in the right direction we need more resources, Alex. I mean, you guys live this right every day. I mean, if, if, if there was a lot more resource behind H2F or total force fitness, we'd be going a lot further, a lot faster. Uh, but we do have to build the evidence. And in addition to providing 
the truth, you know, good evidence and telling good stories, I think we'll get that investment. I really do think we will get that investment. And I don't think it'll ever be illegal to sit on a park bench, <laughs> Drew. Um, you know, but but there could come a point where it will be illegal for a school not to have high quality and quantity physical education and to have perhaps their funding uh, slashed if they don't do that or uh, places of employment that don't have physical activity breaks and walking meetings or, or demonstrate in some way that they're making meaningful changes. I think you could see that. I don't think you're gonna see it at the individual level, uh, but I think you could see it at institutional levels that incentivize or disincentivized policy change and, and therefore ultimately individual level behavior. When you, so from your level and kind of the circles that you've, you've run in with the policy kind of decision maker types, one thing I'm curious about is if, if an individual that you encounter is in a position to where they can say, for example, make it quote unquote illegal not to have PE in school or not to implement a corporate wellness plan. Because again, like we've all said, and I think as everyone will acknowledge, like this stuff is pretty obvious. So what have been the counter arguments? Like what have been the hurdles to doing this? Um, so I'll, I'll talk about those a little bit in, in a minute, but I think it's important to recognize there are examples of, of this going very well. You know, Alex, just as you're out on the road, you know, demonstrating examples where H2F is being implemented with, you know, high fidelity and, and it's making a difference. There are examples, great examples of municipalities, of places of employment, of schools who initiate these policies that make a significant difference in, uh, in the physical activity levels and health outcomes and all kinds of other outcomes. Um, so when it, when it doesn't work, Drew, is when, frankly, you just you haven't stricken enough fear or gotten enough you know, greed out of the person who's making the decision. You know, you just, you haven't made a compelling enough argument and that's going to happen sometimes. And, and back to Alex's point earlier about, you know, you could talk about this in so many different ways. And, and that's really the key is when I'm having a conversation with a decision maker or a policymaker, whomever it may be, first thing I need to do is really understand what's important to them. What, what are their pain points? What are their challenges? What are their issues? What are they concerned about? And I need to really understand those. And if, if I'm going to come in there beating my, you know, my physical activity drum and it in no way impacts their pain points, then it's a non-starter. We're going nowhere. And, and that's okay. You know, but so I'll just move on to the next conversation. And so I, I think that's where, where the conversation starts. It, it starts with somebody who, and again, if it's, so it's, an, if it's an elementary school principal, they may not be all that concerned about national security. They may not, may not be all that concerned about physical activity or, and so on. They may be concerned about test scores and they may be concerned about how many kids are being sent to, to their principal's office. Um, and those are things that we know can actually be positively impacted with high quality physical education and comprehensive school physical activity programs. So if I can say, you know what, why don't you give this a shot? Let's try this for a year. Let's try this for two years. Let's, let's hire a, a, a really good group of physical educators and let's 
let's make sure we've got recess that's fun and where teachers are actively engaged with, with the students. Let's try allowing more students to walk and bike to school safely. And we'll have a walking school bus, quote unquote, where the you know, parents and teachers sort of pick up kids on the way to school and drop them off on the way home. So I, it, it's exploring those, those things. So the, so the obstacles are, you know, well, I, I don't have the time or I don't have the money are, are the, the, the classic ones. So, you know, just like in sales, you, know, you got to overcome barriers. You got to get them to yes somehow, if you can, or you just got to cut bait and just go fishing somewhere else. Uh, and so overcoming those objections is there's an art to that. And for anybody who's been in sales, they, they, they know about that. And, you know, how many of you, have you guys ever bought a car? <laughs> yes. Right. And they're like, so what's it going to take? So Drew, you know, you, you like this uh, Nissan Z? And you're like, yeah. Well, so what's it going to take? You look really good in it. What's it going to take to get you in it today? Well, you know, I, I got to, I got to talk to my significant other, or I, I'm not sure I have the money. Well, you know, well, tell me about the money thing. I mean, how much, how much are you looking to spend? Well, you know, I'm not really sure I have a monthly payment of it, you know, well, I don't want my monthly payment to go up, Well, what's a comfortable monthly payment for you, right? So they keep asking these questions, try to overcome whatever your objections are. And ultimately, either you're going to be a sucker and buy the car, or you're going to actually walk out uh, and come back at least after a couple of days or at the end of the month when they really need to hit their quota and you get a better price on the car. Um, well, so it's that funny. Was, uh, that was quite a ramble, but no, it's funny. You mentioned the car thing because the last car we bought, my wife is a savage negotiator. So I just turned her loose on the salesman. And I'm wondering if turning her loose on national physical fitness policy might make sense as well. Um, it's just, yes. I guess to, to the point though, about kind of the pain points and focusing specifically on the military. And I want to pull up your article to make sure I get the number right. Because I mean, you, you cite here like $3.7 billion like pain point in the military, we we all know this is like you said, resources and, and money. And it's just so interesting to me. Like I say this to Alex all the time. I say this to literally anybody who's been on a military installation. We know what is causing all of this, yet we still see the prevalence of fast food, poor nutrition choices, et cetera. Like it, it's like one plus one equals six. When you talk to people about this, like fix these things and you'll save this money and we'll have more resources to do more things. I just, I, I can't understand where the ball gets dropped along that thought process. All those fast food places fund all of the MWR programs that fund activities for family and sports and all those things. So, which is so crazy a good job of integrating themselves. <laughs> yeah. It's messy. It's greed. There's your greed. I'll, uh, I'll offer one. Dan, you mentioned that there are good examples of this. And one, I try and make sure that everybody I talk to knows about. So first off, if you, if you followed Mops and Mo's for a while, you've probably seen me recommend Spark by John Rady. Uh, literally every human should read it. It'll make you live your life better. But he cites the Naperville study, um, which is cool to me because that's just down the road from where I grew up. But I can't remember the name of the physical education teacher at the moment, but it, it's also called the Zero Hour PE Study. Because the first year of it, they didn't give him the freedom to adjust schedules during the day. All they did is they identified students who were struggling in either like their reading level or a like STEM class, basically math in the, most cases. And they adjusted those kids so that they would have the class they were struggling in first period. And they let him run a gym class for them before school. So zero hour PE, which is why I got the name. and. They, they found 
really dramatic improvements in those kids. And because of the success in year one, they got, they gave him a little more freedom in future years. He was able to like start inserting these PE periods during the day. And it was, it was simple. It wasn't, it wasn't like your classic PE class where like some coach sits out and tells you to walk around the track or like whatever, play dodgeball. Some kids get active. Some kids don't kids wore heart rate monitors. You had to hit a certain heart rate for a certain number of minutes in the period. doesn't really matter what the activity is as long as it gets your heart rate to the threshold they're looking for. Cool. Cause we know all the research on aerobic activity and brain function. Right. Mm-hmm. And the, the success is so dramatic that Naperville, which is in like a relatively good area education wise, but they don't receive any extra funding compared to any of the schools near them is, is not only competitive with other schools in the Chicago suburbs or in Illinois, they're, they're competing with countries like Singapore on global STEM rankings, right? Which is something the United States has lagged in for years. So an, an intervention as simple as get these kids heart rate a little higher and they'll be able to learn better, which costs very little, can, can put schools on the international stage in terms of the success they're having. And, and the flip side of that terrifies me, right? Because you talk about recess, like it's kind of weird to expect kids to sit still for five, six, seven hours a day. We do that. And then if they act up during those hours, what do we do? We take away the little physical activity they had left. So we're, we're digging the hole deeper instead of setting these kids up for success. And it's, it's honestly ridiculous that there are so many good examples of this success and that people aren't latching onto this and running with it and implementing it in other places. Alex, a great example of this in like the healthcare arena is, is Kaiser Permanente in California, where they actually took physical activity and made it a vital sign that every doctor asks their patient about. So it's like, all right, we're going to check your heart rate. We're going to check your blood pressure. We're going to check your hemoglobin A1C. And we're going to ask you about physical activity and how much physical activity you get. And if you don't get enough, well, we're going to then have an intervention of some kind, right? We're not going to, and it may be writing a prescription. Uh, When I, when I owned my business out in Tucson, that was actually what we did business to business marketing with doctors where we gave them a prescription pad with our name on it and said, if you have, if you have a patient that you think needs some physical activity exercise, send them to us. So in, in Kaiser Permanente's health system, they have fully integrated physical activity as a vital sign, and they have realized significant returns on investment for some of these chronic disease outcomes. So like we were talking about earlier, there are examples of success out there. And back to what we were talking about earlier with like a, you know, a focusing event, you know, COVID, I'm not sure is going to be enough, even though we, we certainly did see that those who were physically inactive uh, had higher likelihood of, of, of more severe COVID. I think a potential real window here might be mental health. So the, the mental health crisis that we have going. So if we just talk for a minute about federal legislative policy in that process, let's just go there for a second. So, you know, a bill gets proposed and it gets passed around. Uh, this is a very rudimentary discussion of the, the policy process, but at some there's point, there's a schoolhouse rock of this. If people there need to go over there's a rock summary if you want to. Yeah, with a really oh good my song, God. catchy tune. <laughs> I'm yeah, just a bill. <laughs> That's it. Just a little old bill. Um, 
But at some point, every bill is going to go over to the Congressional Budget Office, the CBO, and it's going to get scored on the basis of what the return on investment for that bill will be. And the challenge with some of these obesity bills or physical activity bills, I don't know if there's ever really been, I guess there's been some, there's been some physical fitness stuff, um, is that when we, again, when we're looking at the return as being prevention of cardiovascular disease or diabetes or, you know, cancer, we're, we're looking further than five years out to see a real economic return on investment. So from the, everything's going to come back from the CBO with a really bad score and it's not going to become a law. Whereas mental health, we can see some very acute and chronic benefits that if we started really measuring, and we do this, right? But I, so we, we need a little bit more science around the actual economic return on investment by essentially you know, recommending or prescribing physical activity as a treatment for or anxiety, depression, stress, post-traumatic stress disorder, suicidal ideation, what, what have you, and demonstrating that, that by doing this, we are actually saving money and saving lives. And you will see I'm relative, I'm not a psychologist and, and I'm not in this particular line of research, but I'm relatively certain we could make a pretty compelling argument. And so we are reaching some pretty critical and scary places with mental health in this country right now. And so maybe that's the focusing event. It's not a single event, but maybe this constellation of, of, of mental health issues that we're seeing is going to be the lever that finally like gets, gets pulled such that we can have more robust physical activity, physical education, youth sport, what have you pervasive throughout this country. There's some really cool research on physical activity they're, they're stronger than almost any prescription drugs ability to do anything where I think some of those conversations get hard. And I've had this with several friends who are doctors who like went through med school relatively recently. So their experience there is probably pretty valid for what current practice is. Their, their teachers in med school are telling them don't waste your time on behavior change because you don't have enough time with the patient to achieve it. So let's talk about fear for a second. So, and, and greed. <laughs> so, so there's, so then there's fear that, oh, I can't, I can't have this conversation because it's not gonna be worthwhile. And the greed is I can't bill for it. Yep. And if I can't, so, so that's what Kaiser Permanente has kind of done. And some other health systems have done. If it's, if it's a vital sign, now I can check a box, frankly, and have a conversation with a patient about it. And you see med medical schools now, and really the first, which is, um, Actually, the, the medical university, I'm sorry, the uni, I want to get the name right. University of South Carolina Medical School in Greenville, South Carolina. Um, they, they are one of probably the, the preeminent institution, at least in this country, for teaching all of their medical students about the importance of physical activity. It is embedded in the curriculum. And Dr. Jennifer Trilk, who's a, a good friend and colleague of mine, is leading that effort at that medical school. So again, sort of like the Naperville example, Alex, that you gave, it's, you know, it's, it saddens me that your friends who are, who are newly minted MDs 
are having this experience, but there's like, there's a Naperville medical school equivalent in, in Greenville, South Carolina, that is making a difference. And their health systems like Kaiser Permanente that are making a difference. Um, so those examples exist. I, I will share one. I've had a couple physical therapists bring this up with me recently. So I'll, I'll pass it along on their behalf, but there is, so like ICD-10 international classification diseases. It's what everybody uses, like what your doctors are using to chart your disease factors and your diagnoses and all those things. Um, there is an ICD-10 code. It's Z72.3. It refers to lack of physical exercise. You can be diagnosed with lack of physical exercise and it, it may be the root cause of whatever you're complaining of. And that is absolutely something that can be charted by a doctor and treated as a disease. Right. Here's the next hurdle <laughs> is we now have electronic health records. And every time you want to put in a new ICD-10 code into electronic health records or electronic medical records, it requires a huge systems change and you got to train everybody up on how to do this. So it's almost like when we had to put seatbelts in cars, there was this huge uproar, right. From, from the, the automobile industry. Like we can't, we can't afford that. That's going to, you know, it's going to eat into our profits and we just can't, but the federal government said, well, too bad. You have to do it anyway, because we know that if people have seatbelts, they're going to be much more likely to survive a crash. We're getting close. I think to the point where uh, I don't think we're there yet, but we're getting close to the point where that ICD-10 code that you just mentioned, you know, lack of physical exercise is going to start getting embedded in all electronic health records. But we have to overcome this hurdle that exists for, again, greed, right? That it's going to cost money to get that embedded into the electronic health record systems. And so that physicians and, and other you know, healthcare providers can ask that question, check the box, and then get reimbursed for the conversation and prescribe the quote unquote treatment. Go for a walk in a park, safe one. <laughs> Do you, so turning kind of the spotlight to the military and specifically we're talking about mental health in this case. And I, I think of a lot of the conversations that we have, especially within H2F, but I've seen this in every branch, like suicides are at an all-time high, behavioral health appointments are at an all-time high. Is there probably a conversation to be had around the physical activity component of that, which I think is an interesting one because at the surface level, the military is all about physical fitness, but there's this kind of underlying current of maybe we could call it like almost gen pop military where physical fitness is something that's avoided or they dance around it, they don't want to do it, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I'm kind of just wondering if maybe you've encountered or seen some of that where instead of over-prescribing, treating it a certain way, there's sort of a re-engineering of what physical fitness in the military truly means to get at some of those, what they would consider crises around, again, suicide, behavioral health, et cetera. Yeah, I, I think that's a great Question, was that a question or a comment? Drew? I don't know. I tend to just make so, comments and sometimes point. there's a, a question was, mark at the end of it. It was a great point because, <laughs> because I think for a lot of people, physical exercise is a pretty traumatic thing. So even going back to like early physical education, right? If like, if you, if you were the kid getting like beamed in the head, you know, during dodgeball, that wasn't fun. 
And, and if you, and then if, if you happen to be like, you get, you get, you know, you get beamed in the head. So you're out of the game and then you end up like playing grab ass with your buddy. And then your PT teacher's like, Hey, stop playing grab ass. Why don't you go, why don't you go run, you know, three laps around the track as punishment. You've just been punished with physical activity and then maybe going to the military and it's like, Oh, your shoes aren't shiny enough. Why don't you drop down on the deck? Give me about 50 push-ups or what, you know, whatever. So I think for a lot of individuals inside and outside the military, physical exercise is not an, it's again, it's like a punishment in many ways. And so it's not a pleasant thing. Um, However, I think when we start to open up the aperture for what physical, and this is, I think an important distinction that needs to be made across our country is the difference between physical activity and exercise and physical fitness, you know, they all kind of get lumped together, but they really are different, right? So exercise is, as you guys know, right, it's, it's structured, it's planned, and it usually requires wearing special clothing and following some kind of routine and getting sweaty and maybe, you know, maybe having a little bit of discomfort. Uh, However, physical activity can be anything, right? Any, 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 any movement of your body. And, Frankly, we know that being regularly physically active, even if it's at very low intensities, but for extended periods of time, like you're a UPS driver, for example, right? So you're active all day. You're not, you're not, I mean, maybe you're lifting a few heavy boxes um, or maybe you're Jim Carrey and you're just like kicking them off the back of the, you know, uh, back of the truck and whatever. But, um, but no, seriously though, one of the, one of the earliest epidemiological studies ever done in the physical activity and health field was called the, the root master bus study. It was, it was done in, in England and it looked at cardiovascular disease risk among, so, you know, in London, they've got like the double decker buses, right? So you've got two guys, two guys, most, in most cases, guys work on the bus. Like one guy's the bus driver and the other guy is the ticket master. He's the one who's like going around and, and collecting tickets and going up and down the stairs and so on. And by most measures, these guys are pretty similar demographically, right? They're probably similar level of education. They're making a similar amount of money. So they can both buy the same number of pints, you know, at the, on whatever, at the end of the shift. Um, so really the idea being that they're, they're basically the same person. The only difference is one is largely sedentary through the day and the other is largely physically active throughout the day. Not at a high, again, not at a high intensity. And I don't, I don't remember the exact numbers, but there was a very significant difference in cardiovascular disease risk for uh, uh, those who were, again, up and down and active all day versus those who were driving all day. And there's even been some research to suggest that uh, the person who might work out, quote unquote, for an hour a day, but then spends the rest of their day and week largely sedentary is less healthy than the person, than the, the UPS driver who never goes to the gym but it's just physically active for the, a significant portion of their day. Um, so as it relates to, you know, the military and H2F and, and mental health and so on, I, you know, I think, what's, I think what's really interesting is how we can open up the aperture for what PT, quote unquote, in military terms, looks like. Can we make it more palatable? Can we make it more fun? Can we... Can we attack multiple domains of H2F or of the human condition in a single session of quote unquote physical activity or exercise? 
Can we get after the mental and maybe the spiritual cognitive domains by maybe doing some yoga and some breath work and whatever it may be? Um, so that's part of that, I think, culture change that's starting to happen, right? There's There's been some interventions with yoga in some different military populations, and the results look pretty darn good on the health outcomes. So I think, um, you know, as it relates to the military, it's, I think it's just like when we think about what physical education looks like, let's think about what PT looks like, not just from a tactical strength and conditioning perspective, which, right, a lot of your guests talk about, and there's, there's a lot of challenges with just the X's and O's of teaching people how to move and, and move with load and all those different things. But when we broaden the aperture even further to think about how do we get around a military base? How do we design a military base so that we can support people actively getting from one place to another? Do we even think about that? No, I don't think we do. I mean, I, I was at the Citadel for 12 years and you know, the important people got on their golf cart and went from one place to another on campus. And it's like, that's not cool. You know, meanwhile, the knobs are, you know, walking through the gutter. And, you know, the, the VP of whatever is, is on their golf cart. And their, their argument is, well, they don't have time. You know, they got to get, get quickly from place to place. I, you know, I can sort of buy that argument. And, and in fairness, most of the people wearing uniforms, you know, at the Citadel were, were pretty physically fit individuals. Um, but the point being, create the environment that's going to allow people to engage in the behavior that you want them to engage in or disengage in the behavior that you're wanting them to stop, like, you know, unhealthy eating or tobacco usage or what have you. I think one thing we struggle with, particularly in the military, and I think schools struggle with it for a very similar reason, is the idea that if you need to get people physically active, then you need to make them all do the same thing together. And, and there's some really good stuff and not to cite Kelly McGonigal's book again, but like people will respond differently to different types of physical activity, right? Some people are going to like running. Some people are going to hate running. Some people are going to like yoga. Some people are going to hate yoga. And I think we gotta, we have to pursue probably some kind of opportunity where we, we explore ways to help expose people to enough different types of physical activity that they can find something that works for them and be okay with the fact that people might do things that are a little bit different. Absolutely. Achieving the goal of just staying active in general. Yeah, absolutely. It, you know, it's, it's, it's almost as simple as everything counts. You know, you want, you want gardening to be your form of physical activity. Okay. Uh, you want walking to the bus and then getting, you know, taking it six blocks and then walking up to your office to be your physical activity. Okay. Um, the question is, do, you know, do we have an environment that really supports that, you know, a built environment and a social environment that supports that? I would argue we do not have that social environment in the, in the military, right? We, you know, physical activity needs to look like, all right, everybody turn to your right and start running. I mean, again, I, you know, that's not how I know it's changing. Um, but the idea of, again, running and push-ups and sit-ups is still part of the culture that still is needing to be changed. And yeah, and the idea that not everybody has to do it at the same time or be doing the same thing is part of that. And that's not, not an easy thing to do. Uh, but I think as we see returns on investment for doing things differently, which we're starting to see, Alex, you're you know at the forefront of that, you're going to start to see policies and practices change. 
that's the goal. We're hopeful. I think we got, we have a little bit of momentum now. And I think you, you've talked about a lot of good strategies for how we do it. I also am hopeful that like, it's, it's exciting to hear that you're about to talk to Congress about this. And we're going to get a bunch of senior leaders involved in all these things. And like people certainly get passionate about federal level and national level stuff. I'm, I'm hoping, and I'll, I don't, I hope we can like inspire some conversation because of this and get some people engaged at their level. But I think a, a ton of, really dramatic stuff that actually impacts people more likely in a day-to-day way is going to happen at the city level and at the local level and at the state level and things like that. And we got to, we got to figure out how to get more people to care. I know I'm equally guilty, right? I pay attention to all the same national stuff that everybody else does. And I don't do a great job, especially because I've moved a bunch of times paying attention to state stuff, but I just hopped on my city's website and found all the city council meetings and stuff. And I plugged in the next like four or five city council meetings under my calendar and hopefully I'll make it out there. Cause I think we, a lot of us think that like it's too big a problem to fix at a national level. Well, maybe it's a manageable problem to fix in your town and you can speak up about it. I don't know. We'll see. Well, uh, yes. I mean, you know, I I think, I think it's, first of all, you know, I'm not going to stop the fight at the federal legislative level. Um, because there are so many examples of, of when we actually do pull those federal legislative levers, there is a tremendous trickle down into states and municipalities, right? So again, you know, the government holds, the federal government holds a lot of money, um, but education decisions are made at the state level and, and even at the, you know, at the district level. So yes, you do not need to wait for some federal legislative policy, Drew, that says, you know, being physically inactive is illegal. Um, You don't have to wait. And and I would argue that a lot of the individuals who listen to this podcast, you know, have, I would say, an obligation to be champions for physical activity in their communities. So if, you know, if you're a, if, if, you know, if you're a tactical strength and conditioning coach working with a particular population, um, I would venture to say that, you know, your, your paid job may end at whatever, 1700 or whatever it is. Um, but your obligation to also potentially be an advocate for physical activity on the installation where you work and, and in the community where you live and where your kids go to school and so on, I, I think you have um, an obligation to have those conversations and and to get involved. And again, the conversations, as we were talking about earlier, like you were just saying, Alex, is, yeah, maybe maybe you go to some city council meetings and you start to listen to what the pain points are and understand what the pain points are. And then you can go, you know what, we could probably solve some of these issues if more people could walk or bike around this neighborhood. Or if if we cleaned up the park and if people felt safe to go there, we might actually solve a lot of these issues. And there are roadmaps for how to do this. Like I was saying, all over the place, there are strategic plans up the wazoo. There are state, you know, physical activity, obesity, and chronic disease prevention plans that have all the recommendations in there. Um, So if it's something that you're passionate about and wanting to change, then support is there. There there are, uh, and I would say, yes, get involved in your at least go to some local meetings and, and, and get involved. I'll ask a, I'll ask an off the wall question here. Cause it's, I think 
we've had some conversations about this before, Dan, but, and I'll, I'll do this without getting overly political or anything, but actually the, the reason, uh, the first real conversation I struck up with Drew was because I saw an article on his wall in his office. Um, it was the soft American article by JFK. It talks a lot about like the work of the president's council on physical fitness, which has now become sports fitness and nutrition. It's evolved over time, lots of different things, but I've been frustrated and, and some of this has to do with COVID. There are lots of factors. And to make it nonpartisan, it's equally true of both the current administration and the previous administration. People got appointed to the council, but like whittle is happening in terms of actual action to the point that like even the annual meetings aren't necessarily happening. And I, I wonder why that is and if you have any perspective on that because i think that's a body that could really be championing these things and leading these conversations and i'm i'm not seeing a lot and i go looking for that all the time and don't find anything i do know there is a pretty significant effort afoot to change what the president's council is doing or not doing and to to embolden to embolden and empower the president's council to be what it once was and so I, you know, there are some efforts that are, that are taking place. Um, and, you know, I don't want to get too political either because I do swim in some of these waters. Uh, but I, I will say that I think that's a very real opportunity. I think it's something that if, if I were sitting in front of uh, the president, I would ask for an executive order on this. That, that the president's council be emboldened and empowered to do all, all that it can. And, and I will say there, there are some things that are starting to happen with the President's Council that are positive. Um, there's a nonprofit arm of, of the President's Council that's you know, sort of a fundraising arm of the President's Council that, that is being sort of reinvigorated. So there is some movement there, forgive the pun, um, but there's, there's a lot more to be done. And, and I, again, I think, I think we're making headway uh, in having these conversations, having these, you know, this briefing that we're going to have coming up with Congress. If we can then continue to have some, some meetings with individual members of the armed services committees and appropriations committees and start to really uh, have a whole of government approach, which is what, what I'm going to be talking about as part of my presentation during the briefing, I'm hopeful. I've been called pathologically optimistic, by the way. So, um, I, I I I am patho pathologically optimistic that that we are gonna we are gonna do this, and we're gonna actually see it in our lifetime. I I really I really do believe that twenty five to thirty years from now, the example that I gave earlier, you know, like, you know, smoking is is quite socially unacceptable now. We're gonna I I genuinely believe we're gonna be there in thirty years. So we asked this question to a number of guests in a number of different contexts, given the various platforms. And for you, I'm particularly interested because we just kind of touched on it a little bit, but given the fact that you have a briefing with Congress and this hypothetical in some ways becomes less hypothetical and more realistic, if you had the keys to the decision-making and say, you know, 24 hours to implement whatever changes you think would have the biggest effect in moving the needle what would kind of like the top three, five, whatever do you think would, would be those changes to, to see the biggest shift? 
for me, it would, it would, it would be comprehensive school physical activity programming. I mean, I, you know, I, I hate to write off two or three generations of people. Um, <laughs> but, but, but if I was going to start somewhere, I, I would start with, with pre-K through 12. And I would ensure that we, we are providing all American children uh, access to high quality and quantity physical activity, physical education, youth sport programs. That's, that's where I'd start. I'd say, put your money here. Put your resources here uh, and, and reward the, uh, well, I would say, and evaluate closely how we're using taxpayer dollars for these programs and don't necessarily cut off funding to schools or areas that are underperforming. Go in and find out why they're not maybe performing well, because maybe they need actually more resources and, and not less. So I think there's a way to, to be good stewards of the people's money. Um, Alex, you and I have had this conversation about, you know, sort of evaluation and, and, and in, in public health, a, a general recommendation is that any intervention that you're going to deploy or fund, at least 10% of the total budget should go towards evaluating the intervention. So if we were going to, so Drew, to answer your question, if, if, if we were going to spend uh, now you're going to have to make me do math, I guess. If we were going to spend, well, I'll, I'll keep it simple, $10 billion or $10 trillion on comprehensive school physical activity programming, I would say, well, let's just say you need to have 10% of that. So one, one, is that $1 trillion? Yeah, $1 trillion. Is that one? Is it, yep. Did I get that right? Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. So you have to have $1 trillion out of that $10 trillion that you're going to use to actually evaluate the program. That's a lot of money. I mean, that's a lot of money, but we have an obligation to be good stewards of, of, of taxpayer dollars. So, um, sorry, it is, it's late for me. And, 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 uh, I, I got Dr. Evil. I got and... Dr. Evil voices going in my head. Now <laughs> as we're talking billions and trillions. Oh man. <laughs> billions. And... <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but yeah, I, I mean, I, that's where I would start. I would just start with our youth. Um, yeah. Because they they are they are the future. Everybody, you know, I won't get into singing the songs about <laughs> our future, but um, I do believe the children are our future. Um, and and similarly, like you know, as we look at H two F and and leadership that's either bought in or not bought in. Well, there's going to come a point where the young leaders are going to be the senior leaders, and they're going to be bought in. So it just takes time. It does mm -hmm. take time for this, for, for culture to shift. And it's exciting to see it starting to happen, uh, you know, in the army and, and across some of the other branches and in certain law enforcement agencies and fire departments and, and, and so on. But um, it does take time. And, and like you were saying, Alex, you know, there can be grassroots efforts and, and there can be, grass top efforts and there can be 30,000 foot efforts and all should be happening. Can you, before, before we sign off, just on that note, can you just highlight some of the areas, maybe it's websites, resources that folks can kind of seek out if this stuff strikes a chord with them, you know, national physical activity plans, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I think, you know, the, the national physical activity plan is one, the national youth sports strategy is another, 
I would just look up or Google comprehensive school physical activity programming. Um, you, you can look and see if your state or your city has either a you know obesity prevention plan because usually within a, a, a lot of them are obesity prevention plans and within those they've got things about nutrition and physical activity and so on or even a chronic disease prevention plan most state public health departments have something like that so you could just google that for your own state or region uh you know uh be active your way is is, is another one that people could could look at that's a a, a cdc initiative so the the the, C, the the CDC also has a lot of really good information on. I mean, they, they've been doing this for for a long time, and and um, so between you know, and that's one of those things I'd love to see is is CDC and HHS working in collaboration with DOD and VA and Department of Transportation, Department of Education, all, all coming together um, to discuss how either they impact physical activity or how physical activity impacts them or, or the individuals that interact with them and what they can be doing to work together to solve the problem. Uh, ultimately, you know, it's those busting down silos and that's not never easy to do, but we, we've got to do it. So, so yeah, Drew, you know, I, I hope that helps. Um, but yeah, the National Physical Activity Plan is the national strategic plan for increasing physical activity in all segments of the population. So that, that would be a great place to start. It is, it is filled with evidence-based recommendations and not enough people know about it. So I, I, would, I would go there and the National Youth Sports Strategy, CDC, and your state or local health department to see what, what resources they have for obesity prevention chronic disease prevention or physical activity promotion. I will plug those into the show notes so people can find them easily. I'll also probably pick a, an article on the Naperville study and, and throw that in there as well. And I will definitely co-sign what you said about, about CDC resources. I remember I a few people made comments that were a little troubling during kind of deep COVID, if you want to call it that asking why the CDC wasn't looking at like the impact of physical activity on mental health and the impact of physical activity on overall health. And I would tell you, there's a huge difference between what the news says the CDC is working on and what the CDC is actually working on. They have a wealth of resources and research and knowledge and references on the myriad benefits of physical activity and socialization and getting outside and all of these things in terms of their impact on your physical and mental health. Yeah. And can I be soapboxy for just a second? Please do. Oh gosh. Okay. Can we talk about the truth for, for a moment? Please. <laughs> That's why we're um, here to uncover the truth. Finally, we're getting somewhere. Um, you know, you know, as a, as a scientist, you sort of take this oath. You should anyway. We don't actually take an oath, but you, you, any good scientist is taking an oath to try to give the best, most unbiased estimation of the truth of what's actually happening in the real world. And good scientists will point to where, uh, you know, it's the limitations section of the study, right? They're going to say, hey, listen, we couldn't account for this. And this other thing may be happening, but for all these reasons over here, and because we've done some robust statistical analyses that are, you know, mathematically demonstrating that these things are having this impact, um, the CDC is filled with unbiased scientists 
people who are after the truth. When it comes to things like COVID and pandemics, it takes time for the truth to become known. It's almost like a fog of war, right? When you're in the middle of it, it can seem like people are lying because the facts seem to be changing so frequently or the recommendations are changing so frequently because they're following whatever the evidence is. And sometimes it just takes a while for the evidence to, to clearly point in one direction or another. And so I know it's been a really challenging time over the last you know, couple, three years for institutions like the CDC, but make no mistake about it, the CDC, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention are about preventing and controlling disease. They are in it for your, what's in your best interest in preventing disease and, and, and improving your health. They're wholeheartedly committed to that, uh, no matter what any journalist might say uh, or any podcaster you know, might say. Um, so I don't know, that's my, that's my soapbox on the truth. Can you handle it? Jack Nicholson, can you handle the truth? I think it's good because I mean, I just, again, speaking as like a strength and condition coach, it's not necessarily a landing page you would think of in terms of seeking out information on this type of thing. But again, like you mentioned, the national physical activity plan, all this type of stuff in order to be a steward for change and for at least having a conversation about it to your point, like it's all goodness and there's a wealth of resources. You just have to know kind of where to start. Yeah. And, and, and if I were to, again, sort of tee up anything, I, I would say that if, if you are going to be at the TSAC national meeting this year in San Antonio, we're going to have a much more in-depth conversation about this and we'll pr provide you with more resources. So myself and, and Jay Dawes and Joe Alamini are going to be, uh, we'll have a session there and even a chalk talk after that to really talk about this issue, the idea that strength and conditioning coaches are also public health practitioners. I know that's scary because you don't know what that means. Uh, some of you maybe, uh, but you are. And, 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 I, and we want to help provide you with some of the tools to, to, to be able to put that hat on confidently and make that much more of a difference in people's lives. Well, you know, I'll be there for that conversation. That sounds fantastic. Look forward to it. Oh, man. Well, Dan, thank you for your time. And thank you for coming on to talk about this. I know this you've got a massive brief coming up. So best of luck. And I can't wait to hear how it goes. <laughs> thank you, uh, guys. I, I, I just want to say thank you to both of you, too, for this. You know, I, I love this podcast, uh, not only on the podcast, but just the work that you do every day. And, and so thank you for doing that. Thanks for having me. And it was really awesome. Fun. Thanks, Dan.